1: My guest today is Dr. Mark Morris, who is the author of the Anglo-Saxons of the history of the beginnings of Earl England. And it's a, fun, I think it's a fantastic introduction to Anglo-Saxon Britain. If you don't know much like I did when I went into this book, I think it's a great introduction to the Anglo-Saxons. And I always open my podcast with, how did you end up studying the Anglo-Saxons? Well, I came late to the Anglo-Saxons
0: because, although I'm a medievalist and have been ever since I went to university, my specialism was post-Norman conquest. Um, and, in fact, even later than that, I mean, I, 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 uh, my doctorate was on the 13th century, 13th century, earls I was of Norfolk. So but the books I've written prior to this point in the last 20 years have all been um, Norman conquest and beyond. So I've done a book on the conquest, I did a book on Edward I, a book on King John... Um, And it was only really having felt I'd I'd covered a lot of the major bases in that post-conquest period looking for something to do that I decided to go backwards rather than forwards. I'd done the Anglo-Saxons in, you know, bits and pieces. I spent quite a long time doing Anglo-Saxon stuff during my master's year. Um, But I'd never gone back right to the start of the period. I hadn't done, you know, the post-Roman period and Bede. So this was kind of, you know, terra
1: incognita for me to begin with. Mm. And I love you begin with the in the book with the Romans leaving, and <laughs> you said this before we started recording that it was a dark. so called Dark Age is out of fashion, but I would still call it kind of Dark Age because reading the you know especially in the first few ch- chapters of the book, it you can see why they called it a Dark Age. So let's talk about the Romans leaving Britain in the beginning because it's it was pretty t- troublesome at the time to put it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean. <sighs> so you have the romans are in britain for four centuries and um you know say what you like about them they're good at organizing you know it's it's a it's a it's a it's, a, it's a, a sophisticated for want of a better word state um economically and in terms of the way you know there's economic specialization so you know if if you lived in you for a start there were towns and cities and if you lived in one of those towns and cities you could be uh, a merchant you know or a wine merchant or you could be a playwright or you could be an actor or you could be you might end up being a slave or a soldier or a man who laid mosaics you know there was enormous amount of economic specialization once the roman state collapses and you know so you said that the romans leave britain or some of the sources one of the sources suggests that britain left the roman empire you know um however that comes to pass by the early fifth century, Britain is out of the Roman Empire, and that means that it doesn't have any of that organisation. So it doesn't have, for example, coins. Mm. Coins aren't being minted in Britain after the fourth century. So if you take away the coinage, that means you're economically very limited. You're reduced to barter. Mm. Um, and it does seem to have been a period. I mean, there's, it's very badly documented, but just from the archaeology, it does seem that it's a period where you get population decline, that there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion. Again, as you would imagine, if you take away the state, which is paying for the army, which effectively keeps order, it's the, both the army and the police, then it becomes a free for all. So uh, I'm not the first historian to say it, but um, you know, that Britain in the early fifth century is a failed state with all the kind of chaos and violence that that implies. Um, and into that failed state, which is falling into ruin, uh we have newcomers coming from um the continent, um, who are collectively known as the Anglo Saxons.
1: So where do they come from? Do you have an idea where, where did they come from? Germany, I think that's what you suggested that came from they come from all over i mean the
0: the word that's used in britain for them at first is saxons i mean we have very few written sources just to emphasize that but the 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 most substantial one we have is a guy writing in the early sixth century around the year 500 called gildas who's a british monk and he refers to them just as the saxons um and so Saxon is kind of the catch-all Roman term for sort of people from, you know, the, 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 the beyond the fringes, the northern fringes of the Roman Empire in Europe. But we know um, from the artefacts they bring with them in the archaeology and from later written sources like Bede that they came from all over. So they're coming from everywhere um, around the coast of the, the North Sea coast and indeed southern Scandinavia. So um, Germany, Saxony... Um, Denmark, Frisia, um, and, you know, Norway, Sweden, etc. So they're coming from all over the place. But they're sort of, they're, as they come, they're, they're combining and forming new ethnic identities. Um, and the, the two principal ones that they fall into, that they call themselves, from the time we have written sources, are either Angles or Saxons.
1: And you do mention in the legend that they came with two ships, right? That it wasn't wasn't that a legend that there was two ships arriving. Three ships. Britain. Three ships.
0: Originally. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. So what, what? So what? But that's something that I found fascinating is that it was kind of well, it might may not have been at the time, but it's, at least in scholarly terms, it was divided into several areas, Britain. So mm. that it was yeah, Northumbria was So what was the areas divided up like at the time?
0: Well. It's very hard to say, I say, immediately after the collapse of Rome. We know that the, the Roman state, or rather the uh, Roman Britain, was divided into four or five provinces, so they must have some sort of afterlife. Um, but the, the the traditional story goes that well, as soon as the Anglo Saxons arrived, they created kingdoms for themselves. And indeed, you know, you'd still be taught if you were a primary school um, student in England, you would be taught that they immediately created seven kingdoms, and you could rattle them off: Kent. Uh, Essex Sussex Wessex Northumbria Mercia East Anglia Um, but those kingdoms take time to form that's the point Um, we don't actually see evidence of people lording it over lesser people until quite late until the late 6th century maybe 150 or more years after the initial immigration starts so kingdoms come slightly later And it seems that originally there may have been many more than seven. There must have been Bede mentions at least a dozen kingdoms and Bede's writing in the early 7th century. uh, Sorry, early 8th century. Um, So if you're going back to, say, the 5th and 6th centuries, when these kingdoms are in embryo, there may have been scores and scores of them, maybe hundreds of little kingdoms. And it's a knockout competition that means that you eventually get, uh, you know, half a dozen or so,
1: which are really powerful. Mm. And. how did the Anglo Saxons treat the the, um, uh, for the lack of a better word, subjects that were already stationed in Britain? whether brutal, murder, rape, um, etc.? How, how were they treated? Well, uh, the, the thing how is that
0: how so you, your question. How were they treated? It. Yeah, yeah. How how did the Anglo Saxons yeah. and the the existing population get on? Well, the short answer is that you know it's anybody's guess. Um, because the documentation is so sparse because we're really reliant on archaeology the one written account we have the one relatively long written account in gildas is apocalyptic so it's kind of like the saxons are invading hordes they're barbarians and it's kind of a constant period of sort of slaughter and devastation um latterly some archaeologists have tried to not just revise that but stand it entirely on its head and say no 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 they were just coming over as economic migrants and it was all fairly cozy and they got them very well but that's you know that's that too rests on very slight evidence I mean the, the honest answer is it's probably you know somewhere in the middle or it's it depends from one region to the other and in some cases some regions you can see it's really an elite transfer model in other cases there seem to have been not wholesale population replacement, but certainly thousands and thousands of newcomers coming in and keeping themselves to themselves. The one thing that seems fairly certain, though, in this period is that the Anglo-Saxons are the people setting the cultural tone because we end up with a population, an entire population, in southern and eastern Britain that speaks Old English and worships pagan gods. And we still have the hangover from that today in as much as in England, uh, Britain, uh, the days of the week are named after those pagan gods. So Tew, Woden, uh, Thunor, Free, etc., that give us the days of the week. So, um, yeah, but as to ha- as to what the relations were like, I mean, it seemed, as I say, it seemed, the one thing that seems fairly clear is the Anglo-Saxons or the newcomers were the people who were calling the shots in terms of what you got to worship and what you had to speak and how you had to dress. So they may have been numerically inferior, but... They are better at coping in the failed state of late Roman Britain or post Roman Britain than the people who had been laying mosaics and putting on plays. Um, they are better because they are more skilled at building their own houses, fighting their own battles, herding and sla- slaughtering their own pigs, etc.
1: Now, something that I want to bring up as well, and you open your book with this, is the there's a farmer called Peter Ratling who, who accidentally lost his hammer and went back to look for it with a metal detector. And then they find one for what you, I think you scrolled one of the biggest finds in Britain. So how significant was this archaeological find? Or maybe not archaeological find, but this find with this well, metal de- detector? No. It's an
0: archaeological find. I mean, I, the reason I start the book with that is, as I say, because with a, when you're writing for a, a, a mainstream audience, you're looking for anecdote and, and hooks, stories Ooh. to draw people in. You don't start with, you know, uh, statistical tables, for yeah. example. And um, the, the actual history of the time itself is, 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 um, you know, those stories are absent because there is there are no really decent chronicle sources, written sources. So that was just a nice way to draw people in, the fact that he'd gone looking for a hammer and accidentally mm. <laughs> found one of the greatest hoards, certainly in terms of coins, to come from late Roman Britain. Mm. So was it a significant find, or was it kind of like... Uh, well, it was significant in that it was very late. I mean, the coins in it went right down to the very end of Roman rule. So there are some coins struck, I think, in 410 or 411. Um, the very last issues um, um, before the Romans leave, yeah. and it was very big, but it wasn 't unique i mean there are there were lots and lots of um of similar albeit not quite so spectacular finds from that period from the late fourth century and on into the fifth century, which shows that the well or two shows two things one that the Roman elite were panicking, and that Britain was indeed going into sharp decline, and they couldn 't protect that wealth, so they felt that the best way to Best thing to do was to hide it in the ground and presumably leave. But the other thing it shows is that they thought it would eventually blow over. That maybe in ten years' time they could come back, or in thirty years' time their children could come back and armed with a map or the the requisite um, directions, they could you know dig up this this buried treasure. It wasn't a, 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 a wasn't grave goods. It wasn't a, an offering to the you know the the fertility gods who lived in the soil. This this was. Um, loot that was intended to be recovered. But of course, as we know, it you wasn't recovered it. until 1992 in this yeah.
1: Uh Something you mentioned that there were pagans, and I want to talk a little bit about pagans before getting the Christianity enters the Anglo-Saxon world, but they, what kind of pagans were they? Did they do human sacrifices? Did they, What kind of... Do we well, know anything about the pagan religion at all? This is where
0: I think it has to necessarily be a short answer, because the honest answer is we don't know because the pagans themselves, the Anglo-Saxons in the first instance, aren't writing things down because they're illiterate, because they're pagan. I mean, they might, you know, etch a name on a sword, but that doesn't really constitute literacy. Um, So literacy comes with Christianity. And of course, the earliest Christian authors, particularly Bede, who's writing in the early eighth century, who is our by far the most important source for the um, early Anglo-Saxon period, Bede mentions paganism. He talks about these kings being pagan, but he doesn't want to get into details because it's paganism. You know, he's he's not not, not interested in it. He, want, he doesn't want to give it any um headspace. So he, t- you know, that the only occasions when paganism is mentioned in be is to denigrate it and say, you know, they were worshiping devils. Um, or once people have converted, they say, gosh, wasn't paganism terrible? We're doing much better now, we've converted to Christianity. Mm. So there are kind of one or two. F- well-known stories from Bede about the conversion process like that. But as to the actual mechanics of paganism, these authors have nothing to offer us. People have tried in the past and said, well, you know, we know we know about paganism through later sources from Scandinavian countries, for example, but they're so much later that they're not really of any value in shedding light on what's going on in 5th or 6th century Britain.
1: Now you mentioned Bede, and I, I, to be honest, I forgot about him. But when, when you bring him up, you kind of do dismiss that his his sources aren't really that reliable. But they do use him or not. So what what how how is it how reliable is Bede really as a source for Well, I think when I
0: when I first mentioned Bede, I say he's not he's not can't be considered terribly reliable for the fifth century because he's writing in the eighth century. But as Bede approaches his own day, he is pretty reliable. I mean, the difficulty with Bede, of course, is because he's virtually unique. I mean, we have one or two other written sources by the time Bede is writing, but nothing on the scale of Bede. That it's very hard to test what he says against anything else. There's nothing to kind of check it against. But without Bede, we would be entirely in the dark. Bede, is, Bede gives a very full um, account um, of, or it thickens enormously once we get into the 7th century. Mm. And Bede has a, an agenda, Bede is telling the story of how these pagan kings in particular kings um and you know by extension queens royal families and nobles etc came to convert to christianity so his his light motif is the the glorious advance of christianity but in telling that story the advance of christianity he tells us loads of other things of course about the society he's describing so um yeah, I mean, I, I, perhaps I don't get me wrong. Bede is, Bede is absolutely, we, we would be terribly impoverished if, if Bede's ecclesiastical history had not survived.
1: And um, going back to Christianity again, how, how does it come about conquering, you know, in other words, Britain and the Anglo-Saxon world?
0: Well, um, it, it's a two-pronged, um, to go with your conquering metaphor, it's a two-pronged assault. Um, it, the, the first and most famous comes from Rome itself, So the famous story is that in 596 AD, um, Gregory the Great um, sends uh, Saint Augustine to convert the the angles, as he calls them. Um, Augustine doesn't arrive for another year. He arrives in Kent in 597 and he converts the king of Kent, who's called Athelbert. Um, And so that's why we have um, the the first cathedral church um, in England is Canterbury, because that was Athelbert's capital for want of a better word and Christianity then spreads in the course of the 7th century north with a missionary effort from Canterbury but at the same time there is another missionary effort that begins in the 630s um, that comes from a different direction comes from ultimately from Ireland. Ireland um, Christianity is spreading into the the, the islands of um, western Scotland particularly Iona Uh, in the late 6th century and by the early 7th century those same monks Irish monks have set up shop on Lindisfarne which is an island off the coast of Northumbria very close to the um, one of the principal palaces of the kings of Northumbria so there is a Northumbrian missionary effort an Irish missionary effort um, from that point on and those two churches represent quite distinct and different and even competing traditions so they come to blows, or they come, you know, they, they, they clash um by by the by the middle of the seventh century. Um so but that's the two main um missionary efforts. And by the time you get to the end of the seventh century, all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms have converted. The last to convert is Sussex, which converts in the, the 680s. And
1: of course, that brings us to one. Some of you haven't looked at some of the changes yet that you write write about. And I want to begin with Offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you talked about that he had a try to have an empire. Is well, how how the how significant is Offer in in the Anglo Saxon story? Well, we've skipped forward um to the eighth century
0: now. So and um Offa is clearly a very important um ruler he, he rules for nearly 40 years and he is the king of mercia which from the turn of the 7th and 8th centuries certainly by the time Bede was writing um, mercia is the dominant power south of the river humber so in southern britain mercia kind of is is the big fish and what Offa does is pushes that supremacy even harder because um Whereas previous Mercian kings had been content with an acknowledgement of their superiority. So they would say, well, look, I'm in charge. You're king of East Anglia. You will pay me tribute, this much cattle, this much money every year, or you will pay me this much you know, tribute from Wessex. What Offa does is tries to eliminate those other kingships. So one by one, you see them fall in the course of his reign. The first ones are the kings of Sussex. They start their careers witnessing charters as um, Rex king. By the end of the 770s, they have been reduced to styling themselves ducks, Duke.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, same with the kings of Kent; they're eliminated in the 780s. The king of East Anglia has his head chopped off in 794, I think it is. Um, the kings of Wessex survive, but only by dint of cozying up to Offer and uh, accepting his superiority. So Offer is 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 forging a greater Mercia. Um, and it's significant that when Charlemagne writes to him at the very end of his reign uh in 796 uh charlemagne in, in, in implicitly acknowledges this he says i'm sending a bunch of um episcopal robes he says there's some for um the northumbrians there's some for the king of northumbria's bishops and there's some for the, the bishops in your kingdom i.e implying that everything south of the humber is offers domain so the,
1: charlemagne out. even tries to do a marriage proposal to offer but it seems like britain isn't not quite what how you developed as Europe is at the time, so what what did Charlemagne had get out of a marriage proposal to Britain because it's as we know its a it was rejected so, so why would offer reject such an offer from charlemagne himself well this is where this is where our sources let us down because powerful
0: as offer was, we have no contemporary chronicle account of his reign. he is sort of this this, this again it's just a blank spot. We have other documentary sources for offer, like charters, which are administrative records, grants of land. But, uh, you know, useful as they are, they are quite dry in trying to work out the story. We have coins, you know, we have law, law codes and we have occasionally letters. In this case, the thing you're talking about is a letter from Charlemagne. We, kn- we know from sort of uh, fragmentary accounts that Offer and Charlemagne had a bust up, a falling out around about 789, 790. And some later chronicler says, well, there, there have been negotiations for a marriage. So we can't really say with any confidence what the negotiations were, why they collapsed. Um, the likeliest thing behind it seems to be that Charlemagne was sheltering some of the exiles uh, of, the, uh, of the dynasties that Offa had otherwise eliminated. So he was sheltering exiles from Wessex, for example. So that's that's likely the cause of the friction between them. Um, but the, the thing you alluded to there, you said, you know, Britain seems to have been behind the curve is that um, Charlemagne and, and, and Charlemagne's empire is 12 times territorially what uh, Offer's was, even at its maximum extent. And Offer clearly admired and looked up to Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the, you know, the, this enormous power in Europe. So everything Offer does, you can see he's trying to emulate uh charlemagne's kind of um courtly culture so he too is issuing coins um with his head in in in, in um uh, profile like a roman emperor he too is having his heir edgbert consecrated just as charlemagne himself had been consecrated just as the franks had been doing for a generation
1: um
0: so you know the, the, in, in that sense um offer is constantly kind of taking a leaf out of charlemagne's playbook
1: now I want to go back a little bit because we talked about the greater empire of of, of and did it was there an attempt to kind of unify Britain, which would come of course later. But did it kind of attempt to unify Britain, make it one country, if you will? Like not that it was a term at the time, but did it try to try to unify? I don't think. I mean, in terms of
0: Britain, no. I mean, the thing is with these with these kings, they often have clerks in their entourage. Who are very happy to accord them magnificent titles, you are the king you know there is, you are the you know king of all southern Britain or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: whether that reflects reality or not or it's just flattering to the rulers that particular ruler's ego is is, is, is the, the question um, certainly I think the most you can say for, for offer is he wants to be the only man south of the Humber who is styling himself king. Um, there was thought. 50, 60 years ago, that Offa was experimenting with the title King of the Anglo-Saxons. It's subsequently been argued that the charters that style him in that way are all late. Um, It's it's, it's possible. There's a kind of a, you know, it's it's not entirely closed that door that Offa was was toying with that idea. But towards the end of his reign, he's just styling himself King of Mercia. Um, The thing is, any tendencies... Towards unity that were going on in the eighth century are shattered in the course of the ninth century. To move the story forward a bit, by the new arrivals who who arrive at Lindisfarne and, uh, in, in seven ninety
1: three, just towards the end of Offa's reign. I'm talking, of course, about the Vikings. Yeah. and speaking of the Vikings, as you know, they had a, a Norse tongue, and I read in a different book, that, right, that I'm reading at the moment currently, where the author mentioned that. Norse, Old Norse was kind of similar to what Anglo-Saxons so language were well, so did they, were they able to understand each other so it's, it's kind of similar was what, there evidence of this
0: yeah I mean they're, they're, I'm sure they could make themselves understood they didn't need much in the way of translation for example it's not, it's not like um, Anglo-Saxons trying to communicate with Britons to the west because you know Britonic cumbrian welsh as it becomes is nothing like you know the germanic languages that are being spoken in in southern and eastern britain so um, there's a real communications barrier there Um, whereas as we said at the start you know um, the anglo-saxons in inverted commas they come from all over the place and in lots of cases they come from north germany southern scandinavia so the vikings when they turn up three centuries later, after the initial Anglo-Saxon immigration, are in a sense distant kinsmen. They are people from that same part of the world, but they haven't converted in the course of the 7th century. So the gulf is not linguistic. The gulf is cultural and religious. And that's why they are perceived with such horror by churchmen writing about them. Not only are they incredibly vicious and violent and bloodthirsty, But they're also not willing to spare sacred places like Lindisfarne. So, monks who, you know, despite all the fisticuffs that occur between uh, Anglo Saxon rulers in the seventh and eighth centuries, religious um, men and women are typically spared. That's not so when the Vikings turn up and religious people, you know, are either slaughtered or carted off into captivity and sold as slaves. So, that's what really um, excites the 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 horror and the wrath of um, contemporary Anglo-Saxon
1: commentators. Now you you talk about this in your book as well that it's it's not that many long ago that they were pagans themselves and behaved kind of like similar to the Vikings and it's not many centuries and before before the the Vikings comes, that they were pagans themselves, which so was kind of a reminder, harsh reminder. I think you you argue.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's I'm not I say that's an idea that I kind of I read somewhere and borrowed. It's I think it's said by Tom Williams in his his book on the Vikings is that you know they are holding up this kind of dark mirror to the Anglo-Saxons and they know that this is this is this is where they they once were. I mean, the genealogies of these kings, when they're written down in the eighth century, they they begin with Woden, you know. So they claim descent from these pagan gods. I mean, they they square the circle by saying, Oh, this was a real person. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's. They know that there's, there's really no difference between their Woden and the and the Vikings Odin. You
1: know, they're one and the same source. Mm. And of course, I, I believe I was, I was trying to find a map here in your book, and uh, I believe it's in the Umbria, region, Umbria regions, right, where they mm. ravaged most. And of course, with the Danes approaching, how does that affect the Anglo-Saxon that the Danish rule started to take over Britain?
0: Well, you've compacted quite a lot to that question. I mean, the, 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 answer, the answer to the question is um, the first part is the Vikings raid everywhere. I mean, so mm-hmm. they first attack, well, the first recorded attack is is Lindisfarne, which is in Northumbria, but they are raiding all over southern Britain um, from the late eighth century onwards and into the ninth century. What happens is, in the course of the ninth century, the scale of those ta- attacks escalates. So they go from initially raiding vulnerable coastal communities either monasteries island monasteries or um, uh, not towns but kind of trading centers on the coast perhaps with three or four ships you know and a few hundred men they they go from that by the middle of the ninth century they are turning up with 30 40 50 ships with several thousand warriors uh i.e. armies capable of defeating royal armies raised by anglo-saxon kings and that means that um in the 860s and 870s the kingdoms of anglo-saxon england fall one by one they go so east anglia first then northumbria then mercia which is a huge surprise because Mercia had been the big the big power block of the 8th century and even wessex wessex falls in 878 but wessex of course famously survives and fights back under the leadership of king alfred and what alfred achieves is he doesn't only hang on to wessex he annexes the western part of mercia so although alfred's reputation as a ruler is exaggerated in later centuries and he's called the first king of all england he wasn't he was the king of of wessex and half of mercia everything to the north and east of that new hybrid anglo-saxon kingdom as alfred calls it everything to the north and east is under the rule of Scandinavians. And in later centuries, that's called the Danelaw. So by the time, all of which is a very long answer, but we have covered about 150 <laughs> years there. Um, by the time you get to the early 10th century, England is split on the one hand between people living in the, to the south and west of a line up the middle called Watling Street. The people there are under the, the leadership of Alfred and Alfred's um, successors, who are Christian kings, and the people living to the north and east are under the leadership, the rulership of Scandinavian newcomers.
1: Now, Snorri writes about this as well, I think, and he mentioned in, in his King Saga, he does mention quite a lot that they do raid, Seems it seems to, according to Snorri at least, he does hardly mention any other region than both Northumbria, that the Norwegian Vikings, that's where they mm. raid the most. Well, yeah, but what, you, what you've got to remember about Snorri is that Snorri's writing in the early 13th century... Mm.
0: Um, and we're talking about the early 10th century, so he's 300 years later. And I mean, I, I've only—I didn't look at Snorri at all for this book because, as far as I'm concerned, I can rule him out of court because yeah. his stories are so late. I yeah, mean, I have fair. looked at Snorri. I've looked at Snorri when I did the Norman Conquest a decade ago, and he has so—I mean, he has quite detailed accounts of the campaigns of the 11th century, um, and there are so many fundamental errors in them. You know, he gets the names of the participants wrong, yeah. he gets the locations wrong, he gets the dates wrong. That anything he has to say um, has to be taken with so much so much salt. It's not a pinch of salt, it's kind of like a just huge dollop of salt. Yeah. That it, it makes it kind of like, you know. It's a shower in salt. Yeah, it's showered in salt. And therefore, it's not it's not particularly palatable, it's not particularly useful as evidence. Mm. Um, but you know what we do know we, we the, the difficulty of knowing about what 's going on in the Dane law is we have this situation once again is that the people who have conquered eastern Britain or eastern England as it 's becoming are pagans and they 're not writing anything down, so we can really only perceive what 's going on in the Dane law through what 's being said in on the other side of the cultural divide and um, you know, even the archaeology is pretty sparse. I mean, you know, we we dig things up, we can see that the little Thor's hammers indicate that they're still worshipping Thor. We can identify the names of certain kings or local rulers because their names appear on coins. But it is very frustrating that, you know, these very rich areas of England, I mean, uh, East Anglia must have had a very rich culture Mm -hmm. in the 7th and 8th centuries, and indeed the early 9th centuries. And it's just wiped off, the face of the earth by the Vikings. So we know virtually nothing. There's nothing written about East Anglia after Bede until the, like the 11th century. So it is, it's, again, it becomes frustratingly dark um, in those areas as a result. You, you of the really Viking
1: rely violence. on archaeological evidence in for of era, right?
0: Yes. And whilst that can tell you a lot of interesting things, what it can't, is certain things it just can't tell you. Can't Archaeology, for example, can't tell you what people were thinking. Mm. In a way that, if you have, you know, written sources, you at least have one person's take on what was going on. If you have a saint's life or a chronicle, you can interrogate that in a way you can't interrogate a coin. Mm.
1: Now, something that Anglo Saxons, of course, tried to do immediately—I wouldn't say Im- immediately—but they tried to Christianize these pagans coming in, and the, it works eventually, of course. With I mean, one of the first Norwegian kings, and again according to Snorri, at least. Is Olaf Tryggvason, which uh, becomes one of. Well, actually, it's not Saint Olaf, which Christianized Norway, but Saint Olaf Tryggvason, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun because Ola Saint Olaf is the one is remembered as Christian Norway. So, how does that change for the Vikings and the Anglo Saxons Christianizing the White? likings
0: well the main development in the course of the 10th century is the kings of what had been wessex who at the early 10th century are styling themselves as kings of the anglo-saxons that's the title they adopt Um, they extend their authority over the danelaw so they start in the at the start of the 10th century it's alfred's son edward the elder and alfred's daughter atelflad lady of the mercians who who extend their power right up to sort of the the, the, the north midlands so um, the, the cut-off points of the river mersey which flows into liverpool and the river trent and then in the following generation edward the elder's son so alfred's grandson athelstan he conquers uh, the kingdom of northumbria kingdom of york as it's often styled so from that point on England is taking a shape that is looking increasingly familiar to modern eyes. Athelstan rules over an area which is equivalent more or less to modern England. Um, There are that, that, that tide between um, Viking and Anglo-Saxon ebbs and flows a bit in the course of the 10th century. But by the time you get to the late 10th century, you have a, a, a kingdom, which, although it has a lot of ethnic diversity in it, in terms of, you know, where people are from in terms of their where well, are they Scandinavian, are they English, etc.? Um there are um it, it's looking recognizably like a unified country. So it has, for example, one coin, which is exactly the same weight and the same design wherever you go within the kingdom. It has one king, obviously. It has one law, which extends across the whole kingdom, albeit with regional varieties. But there is one law. There is one coin. There is one God. There is one king. You know, so by the time you get to the end of the 10th century, um, people who are living there, whether they are living in Northumbria or what used to be Mercia or what used to be East Anglia or what what was Wessex. They have a name for this, which they are, which you see creeping into the literature around about the year 1000. People calling it Anglia if they're writing in Latin. England, or if they're writing in Old English, Englalander. Is, is
1: this very first the name England? That's from? where we
0: first get the name England used to describe what we would call England. So it's it's quite late in the period. It's not until, as I say, around the 990s, 980s, 990s, round about the year 1000, that people are conscious of the fact that they live in a, uh, a polity which is roughly equivalent to modern England. So they can talk, about they might still talk about Wessex and, and Mercia as regional subdivisions. That might be their preferred way of talking about things, but they're also conscious of the fact they are part of a greater entity which has all
1: these cultural, um, political um, factors uniting it. Mm. And, of course, we, we talked about this in the history of nationalism, and, and I want to bring this up as well. They, they didn't look at this kind of like border, that like this is, I'm British, I'm from England, right? They're just... As far as they were concerned, they were from York or Manchester, Liverpool or London, etc. etc., right? It didn't matter that they were from one country, right? They they just were as far as they were from, local town, that was where they were from, right? I
0: I'm not sure I entirely understand the ah, question. Ne- ne- never
1: mind, never mind. That's okay. a ridiculous But uh so I want to talk about the end of the Viking age and you kind of end your book with this as well, uh, where mm. Where the Har, Harald Hardrada comes in and try do the failed attack on Britain. So how is this the really the end of Vikings in the Anglo-Saxon world? Um.
0: Yeah. I mean, we so we've scrolled forward another century in which a lot has happened. I mean, the Vikings have a have a, a tremendous comeback. We should say before we got to Harold Hardrada very quickly. The Vikings come back fighting, come back, come out swinging in the 980s, 990s, attacking. Uh, the coasts of this newly unified state of England during the disastrous reign of Ethelred the Unready. Mm. And eventually they end up conquering England in that, So we have King Canute, a Viking king ra- ruling England from 1016 to 1035 and his sons continuing to rule for a few years after his death. So we do have a Viking conquest of England um, then we have a restoration of the the old line of Wessex in the form of Edward the Confessor, and then famously in 1066 we have the Norman Conquest, which okay. is of course one of the great tipping points in English
1: and deep British yeah. history. Let's let's um, talk about the the um, Norman Conquests with, of course, the, the famous William the Conqueror. How does is this really the end of um, what we call uh, Anglo-Saxon era?
0: Well, it's as good an end as any. I mean, if you have if you're determined to divide, you know, here history up into um discrete periods Mm. um then so much changes in 1066 that it makes a a lot of sense to to regard that as an end of an era as people did at the time I mean that's the point it's not just an arbitrary thing that people you know later historians as they might say would say 1485 you know well that's the end of the the Plantagenets now we have the Tudors and it's kind of a fairly notional line in the sand Mm. but at the time people who started writing in the early 12th century about the events of the 11th century were conscious of the fact that England had experienced this cataclysm as a result of the Norman conquest so it's not just the body count it's not just thousands and thousands of people having died it's the fact that so much of the old culture has been destroyed and they are now living under the occupation of an alien regime which has introduced new things. It's introduced a new language, for example, in the form of of Norman French. It's introduced new methods of warfare. Uh, So we have castles, we have cavalry, we have crossbows that weren't there before. Mm. Um, It's introduced new ways of holding land. It's introduced new ways of new church architecture. It's introduced new attitudes to human life in the form of uh, slavery going out the window and chivalry coming in. So in, in every kind of almost every conceivable sense the world has been turned upside down the world was turned upside down by the conquest and people at the time people in the next generation therefore wrote their histories with this as the conquest as this crucial turning point so it's not that's not a modern invention that was something that was felt at the time so yes i think it does it's a good it's a good um chapter break Uh, in English history. That's why I end the book there as is conventional. But there's, as I say, at the end of the book, so much survives from the Anglo-Saxon period, all the fundamentals that were there from the beginning. So the fact that you have um, uh, an Anglican church, which still has its its, um, administrative centre at Canterbury, is a direct consequence of that's where Athelbert had his capital in the early, or, you know, late 6th century, early 7th century. The fact that The political establishment of England, modern England, still resides at Westminster is directly due to the fact that Edward the Confessor, the last Anglo-Saxon king, decided he wanted a royal palace there next to his new abbey. And you can go on like that, you know, the the names of so many English towns and villages, the huge preponderance of of these place names Mm. were cooked up in the sixth or seventh centuries as a result of, you know, the, the arrival of new colonists from the continent. So in all kinds of ways, the Anglo-Saxon legacy is still with us.
1: And something that I want to, I'm kind of curious about, because we call them Anglo-Saxons in the chronicles in in literary work, but did they call themselves Anglo-Saxons, the common people? Do we have an idea if they call themselves Anglo-Saxons at all?
0: No, I mean, Anglo-Saxon is used, it's used um, from the... Uh, late 16th century uh, in historical writing Mm. um, and and increasingly into the present. So it's in use for the last four centuries. The person who really uses it um, in the Anglo-Saxon period himself is King Alfred. He refers to him, or he in his charters, and therefore the literati at his court, refer to him as King of the Anglo-Saxons. From the moment that he's trying to reach out to his new subjects in Mercia, who consider themselves Angles, um and he's trying to build bridges so he's he uses anglo-saxon as a way of saying aren't we all kind of the same don't we all kind of share the same culture in in opposition to the vikings who are heathen who are pagan who are scandinavian um the different brand
1: can make a new brand in a sense
0: yes in a sense and it's not i mean it's not hugely successful um, but it um, it's certainly used by his predecessors um, exclusively down to the 920s and occasionally thereafter down to 1066. But the po- essential point is they didn't call themselves either Angles or Saxons. They called themselves Angles and they called themselves Saxons. And unfortunately for us, they didn't even use those terms with any great accuracy or specificness. So you will frustratingly find um, kings of Northumbria describing themselves as you know, Anglian, sorry, uh, Saxon kings. And you will find monks writing in Wessex. So you might think, oh, well, they must be Saxons because they're, in, you know, they are West Saxons, mm. describing themselves as Angles. So they're sort of interchangeable. Uh, and that means, you know, it's, it, it's a very convenient term for saying, well, they're Angles, they're Saxons, they're Anglo-Saxons, you know, but you can't sort of use one or the other. You can't say, well, they're Angles, they're English. You can't say they're Saxons. Because at the time there was this um, ambivalence to the to the way they use those two terms.
1: Right. And of course, if you want to learn more about Anglo-Saxons, you should absolutely read more perfect, Dr. Mark Boris's book, The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginning of England. We will learn more than we just discussed in this episode. And you might recognize some of the things we discussed in this episode. Before you go, do you have anything else you wish to promote? Where can people buy your books? Should they wish to learn more oh, about Anglo-Saxons or medieval history?
0: They sh- I mean, the Anglo-Saxons, I think, is available all good bookshops wherever you are. Um, but I've written other books as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have nothing I'm particularly
1: trying to sell at the moment. You know? um, mm. I think just yeah, read history books. History is good. Thank you so much for coming. This has been one well, that well. If you like this episode, please check out some other episodes that we we have on this podcast. I'm sure you to find something you like. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcast and you like this episode, please leave us a review. If you have any guests you want me to interview on this podcast, you can comment in the new, on the YouTube channel or in the Apple Podcasts, with, and I will try to make that request happen.